0: Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. We're gonna look at Isaiah 24 through 27, those chapters in Isaiah. And if you want, you can put a finger there and then actually we're gonna start and we're gonna read a little snippet of Revelation chapter 21. So just kind of orient you in the text today. I feel the need to kind of exhale. It was chaos at the Thompson house this morning. I was was almost not sure we were gonna make it here, Uh, but we are here. So it would have been awkward if there was no one here to preach. I guess someone would have stepped up, right? Kevin, you would have been on? Good, yeah, you would have had it. All right, fantastic. So we made it. It was, a, it was a fun weekend at the Thompson House this weekend. So my sister from Dallas was in town. Kinley, our oldest, turns seven years old tomorrow. Can y'all believe that? Seven years old. And everyone always tells us, don't blink, you'll miss it. I kind of said, we are trying very hard not to blink, but it happens fast. So she's turning seven tomorrow. And uh, my sister has a really special relationship with our kids and we love that. And so she took Kinley to New York City. For uh, Lion King and tea at the Plaza Hotel, and I don't even know what else. I'm sure. So they got back about midnight last night. I have not gotten the full story. We felt the need uh, when we talked about this plan with my sister to sit Kinley down and have a little discussion with her because New York City is just a little different than Dillsburg. <laughs> just a touch. Right? And so, you know, when you're sending your kid off, even with someone as trustworthy as my sister, when you're sending them off uh, to something, just a framework, a context that is just so different than our little farmer's fair Dillsburg, uh, you know, you feel the need to have a little discussion be like, hey, you know, Kenley, there's taxi cabs and there's people and candy stores and stuff everywhere. And don't just go running out in the street because you see shiny objects, all right? So, you know, we're having this conversation about the uniqueness. And it's all prompted by the fact, that whole discussion is prompted by the fact that we recognize that the city where she's going is very different than the city in which she lives now. And we just felt the need to prepare her for that. Well, I wanna tell you about another city. If If you have your finger in Revelation 21, God describes a city there for us that is as much different as Dillsburg is from New York. The city God describes, the city that he will one day establish in the world is immensely different from the city in which we live. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna read this to you. We're gonna read about 18 verses. And I just want you to kind of settle in and get comfortable. And my goal is not that you follow along with me in the text, although you can do that. My goal is that you would visualize what it is. He's gonna paint a picture for us, John, in the book of Revelation, of this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem. And I want you to see it. I want you to see if you can't picture in your mind this description that John is gonna give to us of this heavenly city. So here it is, Revelation 21, 9 to 27. And just listen, if it helps, you can close your eyes. I Sometimes that helps me picture things. Revelation 21, starting in verse 10, actually. He says, this angel carries John away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me, he says, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city... He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper. While the city was pure gold, clear as glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb." And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing, nothing unclean Will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's an awe inspiring description, isn't it? I mean, if you can picture, if you can get that in your mind, what John is saying is God is revealing to him the city that he is going to establish in the world that will be the last city, the final city the city to end all cities. It will be the place where God's people dwell for all eternity. Now we could spend our entire time just kind of dissecting what we saw there in Revelation 21. I had to go on, this can be your little task for the week. I had to go and do Google image searches for all of the jewels that will be in the walls of this city when it comes, because I didn't even know what half of them were. Barrel, a gate, no one knows what a gate is. You didn't know what that was, did you? Right, I mean, and I'm talking... Every color of the rainbow, every shade of every color, sparkling and shining and gleaming in brilliance will cover the entire wall. The thing that stands out to me is just the immense size of the city. So I had a little fun with Google Maps this week. I'll show you, I'll show you a Google map. So if you want to know what 12,000 stadia wide and long and high is, by the way, the city is as high as it is wide. How does that work, right? 12,000 state equals the distance from New York City all the way over to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and then all the way down to Monterey, Mexico, and Google Maps won't let you drive across the Gulf of Mexico. So we had to go up there and all the way back to Miami and Miami all the way back up to New York City. That's how big the city, the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven will be when God establishes it. It's massive. So when I say, that as different as New York City is from Dillsburg, PA, I want you to believe me when I say that the city that God is going to establish when he comes and returns for his own is going to be immensely different from anything we have ever seen or known. in this earth. New York City's a big city. But not compared to this. This will be a city that's half, one city half the size of our country. It is immense at every turn. I just want you to get a picture of that. Now, what does this have to do with Isaiah? In Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, now you remember that starting in chapter 13 of Isaiah, if you've been with us on this journey, I should say, then you might remember, that in chapters 13, starting in chapter 13, God begins to say to all the nations that surround Jerusalem what he's, how he's going to judge them and why he's gonna judge them, because they've been wicked, because they have rebelled against him, because they haven't, they haven't come to him as the one true God, and he has a lot to say about their actions. And So in chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and following, he's got a lot of hard things to say to all these nations. Well, the end of that section is this section that we're gonna look at today. Chapters 24 through 27 in the book of Isaiah serve as the pinnacle of this section of the book of Isaiah where after saying all these things to the nations about the the things that he is going to do in judgment of their wickedness, what he's now going to do in chapters 24 through 27 is he's gonna sum up everything that he said in these chapters by telling us a tale of two cities. He's going to say, there is a city of the world And there is a city of God and they could not be more opposite of one another. And as Isaiah unpacks that for us, what he's going to declare is the city of God that he will bring out of heaven, the thing we just read about in Revelation 21, is going to replace the world's city. It is going to replace the world's city and it will be the home of all God's people for all eternity. And he wants us to see this and by comparing or contrasting these two cities, he's begging us to ask a question. Isaiah is begging us to ask a question. Which of these two cities does my life as I live it right now, which one am I being prepared to live in? Or maybe to put it another way, if God were to examine your life, would it look more like a life that is comfortable in the city of the world or would it look more like a life that is comfortable and at home in the city that God will one day establish? So that's the question for us today as we look at these texts. It's four chapters, so I'm not gonna read every verse to you, but I just wanna walk you through. If you picked up the sermon notes on your way in, you notice there's only two points on it. It's this is what the world's city is like and this is what God's city is like. I just wanna share a few things with you from these texts, from these chapters about what those cities are like so that we might get a taste of it, so that we might begin to live our lives as a preparation to be citizens of God's city. It would be good, do you think, to be prepared to be citizens of God's city? yes. So let's, be, let's begin to prepare ourselves by understanding then what these cities are like. So just a couple of things. I mean, again, there's so much we could say here, but a couple of things we wanna say about the world's city to start with, the one that will be contrasted to God's city. He calls it the lofty city at one point. If you were to read all these chapters, you'll see a number of titles given to this city. We're calling it the world city. He calls it the lofty city, one that is arrogant. But there are two things I want you to see. The first is this, super simple. The world city is destined for destruction. It is destined for destruction. In fact, that's pretty much everything he has to say about this city in chapter 24. Look with me at just a couple verses in chapter 24 of Isaiah. Chapter 24, verse 1 says this, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And then look down at verse 17 through 20. So that kind of sets us up then for the rest of the discussion, where in verse 1 he's saying, I am going to make this, this city, this earthly city, I'm gonna make it desolate with my judgment. And then in verse 17, terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. The most important thing to remember about the city of the world is that it's destined for destruction. So perhaps we might think, uh, if we find ourselves thinking it's wise to say, I, I really love the things of the world. Now, by love the things of the world, I don't mean love people in the world so that they might know God and walk with him and find joy and fulfillment. I don't mean that. I mean loving the values of the world, the things that oppose God. And when we love those things, perhaps we've been thinking that we've got a. it maybe it maybe it's just an issue of God's gonna bring a city, And there's going to be this other city and I can kind of choose and maybe even the city of God is better, but maybe this is like 1A and 1B. And if I'm choosing this one, the city of the world, it won't be that bad. It just won't be as good. But what God is trying to warn us about here is to say, no, no, no. It's not just an issue of a better city versus a lesser city, right? It's, it's an issue of a city that will live and exist forever versus a city that will be utterly destroyed. This is not a safe place to call home. It's not a good idea to call home the city of the world. That's what he's trying to warn us about. The second thing he wants us to see about the world's city in contrast to his city is that its primary value is self-indulgence its primary value is self-indulgence or to say it maybe another way is that in the in the world city you never have to deny yourself anything any desire you have should be fulfilled immediately and the chief sin the chief wrong in the city of the world is to ever tell anyone that something they want is not something they should have does that sound familiar to anyone Listen to chapter 24, verses 7 through 9. He says this. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. And then in verse 10, he says, The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. So, the picture that Isaiah is painting of the world city is one where there has been a pretty loud party going on. It's been a pretty immensely kind of a, like, let's seek a good time at every turn. I mean, let's have our cups filled, let's make sure our table is full of food. And there has been music and there has been dancing and there has been singing and there has been just generally what people would consider a good time, but not a good time sort of in submission to God, but a good time in opposition to God. And the the picture that Isaiah is painting is is of a city of self-indulgence, one that has never said no to any good time, one that has never said, you know what, enough is enough. Maybe we should stop right there. I'm full. Maybe I should push away from the table. The picture is one of complete self-indulgence. But on the day that God comes and establishes his city, what Isaiah is saying is that wine that used to taste so good will now taste bitter. That food that used to taste so sweet will now taste deplorable. There will no longer be mirth. You know, the music's gonna get turned down. The band is going to stop playing. And all that once tasted so sweet will no longer taste sweet. Because when God comes and establishes his city, it will be revealed how foolish the values of the city of the world have truly been. So we said that the question that Isaiah is trying to get us to ask is, is my life and the way I'm living it now, is it preparing, which city is it preparing me to be a citizen of? Is it revealing that I really am more a citizen of the world city or that I'm really preparing to be a citizen in God's city when he establishes? Establishes That's really the big idea of these chapters. And so there's probably some helpful self-examination questions that we might want to ask ourselves when it comes to understanding whether that's true for us. And a couple came to mind for me as I was thinking about this. The thing that you see about self-indulgence here and this high value that the city of the world has for it is that self-indulgence ultimately makes us numb to the things of God. It makes us deaf and blind to the things of God so that we don't feel the love for him that we should feel we don't hear him the way we should hear him because we have overindulged our senses in this world and when we overindulge all of our tastes and desires in this world it makes us have no taste for the things of God and I guess as you've experienced some of that I have you know, and so that's what he's getting at with us so here's a helpful self-examination question is when's the last time you heard God say something to you it's a simple question right When's the last time you went to prayer? And I hope you know that prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. I hope you know that it's supposed to be something where God speaks back to you, if his spirit lives within you. He always speaks in agreement with his word, never in opposition to the Bible, his word, but he speaks. God intends to speak to us. Words of comfort, encouragement, words of correction, a variety of things. Words of reminding us, you're my son, I love you. You're my daughter, I love you. Words of correction. That's wrong, don't don't do that anymore. Stop, move the other direction, right? God wants to speak to you in your times of prayer. So I find it to be a helpful question to ask myself, when's the last time, if I expect God to speak to me, when's the last time that I heard him speaking to me? And if I haven't, is it because that I have overindulged? I've overindulged and made myself numb to the things of God, overindulged and made myself deaf to the voice of God in some ways. It's not, an irreversible, it's not an irreversible condition, okay? But it is something to pay attention to. The second question I think that's helpful to ask upon examination of whether I'm embracing the values of the world city is, when's, how am I doing in my practice of spiritual disciplines that involve denial, that involve self-denial? Two, the most, two most obvious ones are the practice of Sabbath rest and the practice of fasting. Both of those biblically, when you just, you just read the New Testament in particular, it seems pretty evident that these are things God expects followers of Jesus to do. To practice Sabbath rest, to put away work, and to say, look, I know that I work hard, I I work to provide, I work because God made me to work, designed me with skills, in fact, work is good. But he also designed me to need rest. And he calls me to be intentional about creating rest in my regular rhythms, because when I rest, I'm reminded that ultimately, as hard as I might work, I'm not the one that ultimately provides for me. Ultimately, it's God who provides. And when I stop working, perhaps others are getting ahead in my career track. Perhaps they're outpacing me in excellence because they're working and I'm saying, I'm gonna stop and trust that God is God. He's on the throne. He will provide for me. He will make a way. And I don't have to work myself into that provision. So discipline of Sabbath rest is really a discipline of denial. So is fasting, right? You can fast from a lot of things. Food's the most common one. So perhaps you partake of fasting. This is just an expectation that the people of God would fast regularly as a rhythm in their life, that they would fast from food or perhaps from entertainment, perhaps from you know any number of things. But let's just use food as an example. Maybe I fast 24 hours, maybe I fast 36, but when I fast, I fast not as a, oh boy, look at me, aren't I holy and spiritual, but I fast to deny myself food for a season, which is a good gift. Food is a good gift from God, but I deny myself that food to remind myself that my true food is the word of God. My truest bread is not physical food. My truest bread, the thing I need most to flourish and to be nourished is God's word spoken into my life and obeyed in my life. That's the food that I truly need. He is my bread. When I partake in fasting, that's what I learn, right? So those two self-examination questions, if they're helpful, utilize them. When's the last time I heard God speaking to me directly about something? And how am I doing in my disciplines of self-denial? Am I practicing them? Is there regularity in those? So I wanna spend most of my time not talking about the city of the world, amen? We're talking about the city of God. So let's talk about a few of those, okay? So hopefully we see the world city at least somewhat clearly. Now let's look at God's city. And I wanna share a few things with you that the text shows us about God's city that are just so good. The first one is this. that God's city will be the home of people from every nation. Look at chapter 25, verse 6. So chapter 25, verse 6 through verse 12, they are the center of this entire four chapters that we're looking at. And and verse 6 of chapter 25 is the first thing, the very first thing that God says in these chapters about his city. It's the first word. So listen to what he says first. Just one verse now. Chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So second thing I wanna talk about in just a second is the feast that's awaiting us. But the first thing that we notice is that this city will be home to people from where? From Dillsburg, PA? Yes, but also from everywhere from every nation. Now you have noticed as we've been going through Isaiah, if you've been around, you've probably noticed that this is a theme that we keep coming back to again and again. And guess what? We're gonna keep coming back to it because the Bible keeps coming back to it. It keeps coming back again and again to this reality that God's, God's city is going to be a city where the citizens will be from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every racial background, every ethnicity, every people group will have representation in the city of God. And I love that. It's fantastic. But it begs a question of us. Am I living my life in such a way that it displays that I will be really excited to live in this kind of city? Will I be excited to live in a city where all these people from all these different backgrounds live and call it home? Or does my life reflect, perhaps, that I would be more comfortable if everyone in this city looked like me? That's an important question to ask. It's a tremendously important question to ask. Because lest you think, well, you know, maybe there'll be sections in the city. It's a big place, right? We just saw it. it's half the size of our country. Maybe over here will be this people from this background, and over here will be people from that background. If you think that's gonna be the case, you are sadly mistaken, my friend. Because in this city, we will live among one another. And look, when I say, is your life, does your life reflect that this is a kind of city that you'd want to live in? When I ask that, I don't just mean, are you overtly racist? What I mean is, are you actively seeking the enjoyment of cultures other than your own? Are you actively seeking to learn from and understand and grow in and delight in all these cultural expressions that God has placed on our planet and from among whom God is going to win people for his glory because the glory of God is too small for one people. It's not enough for God to have one people group. He needs every people group because he's that amazing. He's that good and that glorious. One people group can't hold it. And so the Bible returns again and again to this theme, this idea, you saw it in Revelation 21 when we read it. The nations, the glory of the nations is gonna come into the new Jerusalem. You see it again and again in Isaiah. There is this crystal clear picture. And friends, we need to return to it again and again because quite frankly, I love that God has transplanted my family to the West Shore. I love it here. I love where God has placed us. But this is an area where we fail to reflect gospel culture very well probably of all the ways, I mean, we do it pretty well in some ways, but if I'm honest, our area and where we live and our church needs more of this. It needs more of an understanding and a delighting in people from a variety of backgrounds and cultures and an understanding that God is all about this. And so we have to be all about this. When the culture of your place does not align with the culture of the gospel, which one wins in your heart? Which one wins? I get pride of place. I mean, heck, I'm a Texan, okay? There ain't no prouder people of the place where they live. It's a little shameful, okay? So I get pride of place, but where gospel culture does not affirm, it does not align with your place. Don't change gospel culture to act as if the culture of your place is right. Change the culture of your place and declare that the gospel is right. Are you with me? It has to happen. That's okay, yeah, you can clap. The second thing God shows us about his city, the second thing God shows us about his city is that those who make their home there will learn how to truly enjoy things. Now, you might think, what what does that mean? Did you catch what happens? I love this because he's just said to us that one of the things he's going to judge is just this kind of party atmosphere that existed in the world city. And then, so you might expect that the God city might be really austere and kind of all drab grays and maybe, you know, the the feast is going to be stale bread, everybody. That's what we get. No, he says here, did you catch it in verse, uh, verse six? Did you catch it? He says, oh, there's gonna be a feast. You thought you knew what a feast was. You have no idea. Because at my table, there will be the richest of food, the well-aged wine. Oh, he's getting rid of the new kind of garbage stuff, okay? This is the best vintage. We are going to drink deeply from the best vintages. We are going to taste Food like we've never tasted before. It will be amazing. Okay, take Thanksgiving, take Christmas feast, multiply it by a thousand. That's the table of God, right? There is no calorie counting. Somebody say amen, right? Slathered in butter and gravy everywhere and stuffing and mashed potatoes. Oh, made like half cream mashed potatoes. It's just gonna be so good. Right? I grew up in a in a in a family. Uh, my mom was a healthy cook. My grandmother was not. She cooked like God bless the women of the Deep South, know how to cook. And we, my cousin was a, like a runner-up. Was runner-up Miss Texas. Yeah, runner-up for Miss Texas, right? So she was always watching her figure and all that kind of stuff. And so we were at Thanksgiving one year and my grandmother had made, I mean, it's, you know, it's stuffing, it's mashed potatoes, it's turkey, it's ham. It's, it's the best chocolate pie you've ever tasted in your entire life. It's just Everything. And we, my plate is full, and my cousin's just got a little plate of green beans over there. You know, and she's, I'm just like, that's so sad. You need to embrace the, the city of God is coming. You need to embrace it. And she turns to her mother, and she says, she says, these green beans are amazing. And my Aunt Zoe, my aunt's names are Zoe Ann and Kaylee, I mean, we're from the South, all right? My Aunt Zoe Ann, she says, oh, sweetheart, that's because they're cooked in bacon grease. Amen. Have you had green beans not cooked in bacon grease? Not so much. In God's city, all the green beans are cooked in bacon grease. That's what I want you to remember. That's the important thing to remember. You're all dismissed. I'm kidding. But here's the deal here's why the feast is so rich. Because for the first time, we will be enjoying what we enjoy while feasting on the presence of God as well. We will feast on the richest affair and we will feast on God himself. And the problem with our level of enjoyment in this world, the reason we've never truly enjoyed anything is because there's always some amount of disconnect between our feasting and love of things in this world and our feasting on and loving of the presence of God. And for the first time when we are established as citizens of this kingdom, of this city, when we sit at the banqueting table of our God, we will know what it is to have no division between the feast of our enjoyment on the things that God provides and our feasting on God himself. They will be one and the same. And you will know what it is to truly enjoy something for the very first time. Think about how much you enjoy all the things I just talked about. You haven't actually ever really enjoyed any of them in comparison to the way you will enjoy who God is and what he gives you when you live in his city. Now, if you don't want to live there, I don't know, I can't help you. I don't know. Now, third thing we see about this city is that God will swallow up death in his city. Listen to chapter 25, verses seven and eight. And he, God, will swallow up On this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, which makes us go, okay, well, what's the covering? What's the veil that he's gonna swallow up? He tells us in verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I love that. The Lord has spoken. And when the Lord speaks, it is so, right? I mean, I'd say things all the time, nothing happens. Kenley, clean your room. <laughs> 20 minutes later, nothing, right? Not the way it is with the Lord. The Lord speaks and it is so. And what the Lord declares here is that in his city, death will be swallowed up forever. Now get this, because it's amazing, right? Think about in the, in the city of the world, death runs rampant. It has its way everywhere you turn, in every city, in every alley, on every street. It has its way. Think about how much we do, how much you do on a daily basis to protect yourself from death, to prolong death, to keep it at bay, to make it further out and away from you. Everything from putting on that seatbelt to the billion dollar drug companies that exist in our world exist to put away death. It is always present in our thinking. If you were to count tomorrow, the number of things that you do to try and prevent or put death a little further out, my guess is the total is gonna be well over 100 things. From the vitamin you take in the morning to choosing to drink that healthy shake rather than have the bacon in the morning, right? You are attempting, it's not bad, none of that's bad, by the way, you are attempting to put death further out. It's so present and it wreaks so much havoc that we cannot possibly fathom what it will be like when it's no longer a consideration. But in the city of God, you will never again think about death because God has swallowed it up. We will feast on the riches of fare, and God will feast on death. He will make a meal of it and he will swallow it up and it will no longer rule and reign and wreak havoc. Ponder what it will be like to live in that city and to never ever again Give a single thought, not a moment, not a pause of a single breath to consider death. It's earth-shatteringly different than where we live now. There's one more thing I want you to see that God says about his city, and it's this. Those who make their home in God's city will no longer be belittled for believing that what God says is true. Those who make their home in God's city will no longer be belittled for believing that God is true. Chapter 25, verse eight and nine, say it this way. After he talks about swallowing up death at the end of verse eight, he says the reproach of his people, which is basically being made fun of, the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. I love that. Do you see, do you see what Isaiah is getting at in those verses? What he's saying as, is right now living in the world city, what happens is you get made fun of for believing that God is redeeming a people by, and rescuing them by sending a savior to die and then rise from the dead. That's foolishness. Paul talks about that with the people of Corinth in 1 Corinthians. He's like, everybody in the world looks at that and he says, that's stupid. That's for the intellectually inferior. That's for the intellectual midget, the person who who can't deal with the science, who can't deal with the reality of the way things are in the world, that there's nothing beyond death. We are belittled and made fun of at every turn because we believe that a crucified Savior redeems a people for himself. And that there is life after death in his presence. When God establishes his city, the truth that you believe will be vindicated because it will be the truth upon which everything else in that city is built. Everything else upon that city is built upon the foundation stone of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Everything. Everything that's true is true because that's true. And it's all derivative of that. And far from living in a world where you get belittled and made fun of when you dare to open your mouth to say Jesus is King, He is a crucified Lord, and He was raised from the dead by the glory and the goodness and the power of the Father, it will no longer be, there will no longer be anyone who says, Oh, well that's just a crutch for the intellectually weak. Only and always and forever you will be vindicated in the truth of that belief. And you need to know that because it's what instills boldness to continue to declare it even while you live in the city of the world, which does not value or hold that to be true. But it is true, and you will be vindicated in your belief. Church, you have to know it. You don't need to be shy, you don't need to be afraid you definitely should not be ashamed because this truth, when the city of God is put into place, will be the truth upon which all other truth is based and built. So what do I do? What do I do between now and the time that God brings this city? I mean, we're living in the city of the world. It will be replaced by the city of God. What do I do? Well, Here's what I wanna tell you. Chapter 26, verses seven through nine gives us an answer to that question. So just a little bit further down, further forward. Chapter 26, verse seven says this, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance, or some versions say, your name and your renown are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night, my spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. What Isaiah is telling us is, well, how do we wait? Like, how do, what do I do until the city of God comes? And the answer to that question is, walk in the paths of the Lord. Seek him, pursue him with everything you've got. Be about the, the values and the attributes and the character of the city of God that will come one day, do not wait and imagine that you will be prepared to live in that city if you've been living by the values of the city of the world until that city comes. Practice your citizenship now because it's been purchased for you by Jesus with his blood. If you have believed in the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, if you have believed in his resurrection and if you have given your life to him, to walk with him, then you are a citizen of God's city. You are a citizen of God's city. That is foundationally true about you. And right now, you don't live in the city of which you are a citizen. You live in exile in another city. But don't live like you're a citizen of the city where you live in exile. Live like a citizen of the city where you will spend your eternity and where your citizenship truly resides because that's your home. And you are the ambassador of that place until the day he comes and brings you into it. So live, live as a citizen of God's city. I wanna make an invitation to you. Some of you have not placed your faith in Jesus. It's not a choice you've made. And we are so glad that you're here to examine faith in Christ. This is the right place for you. I wanna invite you to make a decision to trust him, to become a citizen of the city that we're talking about. If you've never done that, It's available to you. All people, all nations can come into this city. It just depends on whether or not you would become a citizen by believing in Jesus. And so we wanna invite you into that. I'm gonna invite our worship team. You guys come on up and we're gonna sing a song to close our time. At the end of that, I'm just gonna invite you, if you sense God's spirit prompting you, if you know you never made a decision to trust in Christ and you wanna do that today, my prayer all week for you has been that God would prompt you and you respond to that prompting, that you just listen. The Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus and our hope is that you'd respond to that. So we give you an opportunity to pray a prayer. I'll kind of guide you in that but just use this time now as we worship the Lord to consider that and church family use it as a time to consider how God is calling you to continue to live as a citizen of his city. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus we love you. We pray that you'd have your way with us. I pray right now uh, that those who are considering whether or not they should come to you for life and salvation to be a citizen of your city. I pray that you just Whatever's in the way, Holy Spirit right now, communicate to them that it doesn't need to be in the way anymore and that you love them and you want to make them a citizen of your city. I pray that you do that, even as we sing now. Thanks that salvation is your work. It's not the work of any man. It's your work. Pray that as we sing, you'd receive it from hearts that, that have a clear vision of this city and that want to be citizens of it and we want to live like citizens of it. So we respond to you now and the truth of your word by singing back to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand, let's sing together.